Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to the Debunking Economics Podcast with Professor Steve Keen. I'm Phil Dobby. And there's a desperate need to get back to work, it seems. Governments are saying it. People who've lost their income are saying it. And yes, the coronavirus is probably saying it too. It wants more hosts to infect. And if we all start mingling, then it's payday for COVID-19. But the desperation is driven by money, which is an artificial construct. Are we all prepared to die for that? Or is there another way? And even if the economy does kick back in, what of all the debt that we've inherited in the process? With the Bank of England now predicting the worst slowdown in the UK economy for 300 years or more. Isn't now the time to seriously look at the idea of a debt jubilee? That's this time on the Debunking Economics podcast. So, Steve, I mean, we know that individuals, businesses and governments are all going to come out of this virus with massive debts. In the US, maybe a few trillion dollars worth of extra government debt, which a lot of which is now being issued in 20 or 30 year bonds. So they don't have to pay it back for a long time. But we've got no no talk of modern monetary theory. So these bonds are bonds which the government will have to pay off at some point, possibly after you and I have left the planet. Uh, and, and presumably that means that we know that interest rates are going to stay low as well now forever <laughs> because there's so much government debt. I mean, this is that that's pretty inevitable as well, isn't it, out of all of this? Well, interest rates are low not because government debt is high, but because private debt is high. That's really the cause yeah. of brothers driven it down. Um, it helps the government too, of course, though. Oh, yeah. I mean, well, it, only in the sense that, I mean, this, again, as modern monetary theory emphasizes, government money creation is an accounting operation between the central bank and the treasury, uh, which they foolishly let the financial sector intervene in the middle of as well. But the whole thing um, is ultimately payable by the by the by the Federal Reserve, by the central relevant central bank. So, so uh, why yeah. this why this resistance to modern monetary theory then? Because I've I mean I have heard from people who wouldn't have even entertained the idea, mm. people in in the in, in the banking sector, uh, who would have thought you know it, it's it's the idea that uh, you know, that you, the governments can create money uh, and uh, or sorry banks central banks can create money and give it to governments with, without any need to pay it back uh, was just crazy talk. And now I hear them talking about it as as a viable option. And yet we don't hear the Reserve Bank talking about it. We don't hear anyone in America seriously uh, discussing it, and yet it seems like this is the ideal time to to give it a try, at least. Well, that's actually, it, it, it's, it, it's modern monetary theory. People say you don't have to give a try what actually, what actually is the real, realistic description of how accounting operates. But the thing which is happening in England, which makes it uh, so interesting and, and, and so much affirmation of the modern monetary theory approach, is that the central bank, is, uh, the, the Bank of England, is directly paying, buying for treasuries directly from the treasury itself. It's, it's buying those bonds. And yeah. it, all, all the, rather than buying it on the second, yeah. just on what difference does it make whether they buy it directly or they buy it through through the secondary market? Whether the, gov- the government issues those bonds, someone buys it, but then the, the, the central well, banks are well, la- going to largely it means the financial sector doesn't earn income out of it, and that's one reason why that, right. I think when we want to know why the uh, 
why there's so much resistance to it most of the times because if you take it seriously it's why by a large part of the financial sector because uh, they, they don't get the income out of the bonds so if you, if you think let's, let's imagine you've got bonds paying 10 percent which of course is far more than is being paying right now and you offer a you offer a billion pounds which is far less than the amount of money we're talking about say say 10 billion pounds just to round it all out so if the treasury mm-hmm. if the treasury issues 10 billion pounds worth of, of uh, bonds yielding 10 percent and they sell those, then the financial sector buys those bonds, then the financial sector has claimed an asset, which is going to give it a, a £1 billion a year income stream. Now, uh, how is that actually paid? Well, the, the bonds are still managed by the central bank. And I, I might be wrong as part of the detail, but I think I'm generally correct. Um, when those bonds are, are sold to the financial sector, the interest payments are made directed treasury directs the, the, the interest payments to be paid to the to the um, to to the financial sector effectively through the bank of england and what no. all's happening you're cutting that out um, so rather than the money being paid to the financial sector uh, if the, if you sell that instead of sell that 10 that charge you know 10 billion pounds worth of bonds is sold by the Treasury Director of the Bank of England. The Bank of England says, okay, we'll buy those £10 billion worth off you of bonds. So they record a £10 billion asset on the asset side of their books. And the £10 billion liability they create is £10 billion they pay into the Treasury's account. And the Treasury can then spend that £10 billion into the British economy. Now, the Treasury is then liable to pay a billion pounds a year to the central bank for the the, mm. the covered interest, and how does it do that? Well, it pays it all right, and then the central bank returns the profit from the ten billion, the one billion pounds a year, leaving out the costs that are involved, the cost of managing the Bank of England itself, which is nowhere near the scale of the uh, interest payments involved. Uh, they remit the profits they make from that back to their owner, and who's their owner? Oh, it's the treasury. Yeah. Yeah, quite literally. I mean, that same thing applies in Australia. The the central the, the Reserve Bank makes a large profit out of some of its foreign exchange operations and also out of its bonds. Its profit is remitted to the Australian Treasury every year. So, in that sense, it's all an internal operation by the bank by the uh, government sector. <laughs> right. So, but when 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 the Bank of England says, "Well, okay, we're going we're going to cut out the middleman. We're not going to go through the finance sector. We're just going to issue these uh, the, the so the government's going to issue the bonds and we're just going to buy them. The Treasury's going to issue the bonds and we're just mm. going to buy them." Uh, I, I mean, I, I suspect they're doing that for liquidity reasons, aren't they? Because they have all these concerns about li- liquidity uh, in the finance sector. But it, but at the end of the day, they still uh, are expecting that, that those that those bonds are going to be taken off their balance sheet at some point, even if it's in thirty years' time. So, and that that that's the only difference, in effect, from what's happening now and modern monetary theory. Uh, and it's it's like saying, well, okay, we won't we won't go down the modern monetary theory road. We'll just push the problem thirty years down the track. I mean, it seems like a small step to take, doesn't it? To just say, oh, sod it, let's just let's just let's just try modern monetary theory and and put it into practice. Well, and, and not so much put into practice as simplified because you're already it's already putting into practice as describing the actual accounting operations involved. What you're doing is leaving out the financial sector. They're not being yeah. paid any money for it. And gee, they're likely to complain and say how disastrous it's going to be for the economy and you have to pay this debt level back, et cetera, et cetera, which is all the sort of stuff we heard from them from the financial crisis that we're hearing from them again right now. Um, it, there's actually an interesting analogy to the um, world of Jane Austen uh, because if you go back to the days when uh, – 
the uh, being a wealthy person in Britain, many either having land or large amounts of government bonds. The money that was paid to keep the Austins alive came out of their purchases, not the Austins, but some of the the uh, men that they were competing. The people which they wrote about. Mm. Yeah, okay, yeah. Um, that was that was um, coming out of the central treasury. Uh, effectively financing the ruling class of Britain in return for them uh, purchasing the bonds. And it's a similar mm. thing that's around with the financial sector. So they, they have a vested interest in saying, you've got to sell the bonds to us. You shouldn't sell it. You shouldn't just do what, what is actually possible by the sheer mechanism of accounting. You shouldn't let the Bank of England buy the bonds off the Treasury directly. But in fact, it, in, in the, the only thing which changes is who, get, who gets the income from the bonds themselves. And at the moment, that income goes to the financial sector. If the Bank of England buys them directly, that income effectively goes from the, from the uh, central bank back to the treasury again and stays right. in. So there's no need to finance it. There is no need to buy to. So, you know, all right, yeah. okay. And mm. it just makes perfect sense, doesn't it? Because the finance sector, even without that, without that issuance of, of extra bonds, I mean, there's still so many bonds switching around. And, and in the United States, they're not following that approach. So you've got two or three trillion dollars uh, with, with the interest for which is going to find itself in the finance sector. But then you've also got all this extra debt which is being racked up, private debt which is being racked up as well. Mm. So the finance sector is going to come out of this much bigger than it went in, isn't it? Well, potentially no. If we're not a careful. Lot of that, a lot of that debt's going to be uh, un- unable to be repaid, and this is the real danger. I mean, Michael Hudson's mm. been saying for a hell of a long time that uh, debts that can't be repaid won't be repaid. Uh, but what's tended to happen is what Yanis Varoufakis said uh, Call what did he call it? His wonderful expression for it, um, kicking effectively kicking the can down the road with private debt. Uh, you pretend that you can roll over debts that, that can't be repaid, so you reissue them, reissue them. I think he calls it extend and pretend. And so you have a country which, like I said, when Greece owes debt to uh, the European Union, that is not. Uh, like typical uh, government debt, that's because they don't have their own currency. Uh, but you simply pretend they can pay the debt. You you capitalise the interest they haven't yet paid, and you create an even larger debt burden uh, further ahead. With the private sector, that's not likely to happen. So if you have a private organisation which can't service its debts, and the bank um, the bank that it owes the money to has to write the debt off and first of all put it into its bad debt folder folder, and, and then finally write that debt off. Um, that company will fold. The bank won't go and, and try to rescue them by getting them yet another loan because they know they can't finance it back in the first place. So yeah. the odds are there'll be a large chain reaction of bankruptcies. And the real danger here uh, is that those bankruptcies will take down not just the companies but the banks themselves. Yeah, and the, well, and and but not now. You know, a year or two years or three years down the road, and and they yeah. the governments are kicking the can down the road, aren't they? Because in the UK, we've got the coronavirus business interruption loan scheme. You can finance get finance up to five million pounds for up to six years. The government is going to pay the interest charges for the first twelve months. Beyond that, you're on your own. You're still going to have to mm. put your house up or whatever as a personal guarantee. Mm. And it's similar in the US. They've got the Main Street Lending Program, which basically defers payments for the first year, but it must all be paid back in four years at the LIBOR rate plus three percent. Oh my god! And um, yeah, I mean, <laughs> this is crazy stuff, isn't it? Because it's like going, yeah, so long as uh, you know, for the first year you're okay, uh, but just hang on for 2022. And then we're going to smash you in the face with the extra debt you've run out during a period uh, when you should have prepared for a, for a, uh, a virus in the, in the ways that we didn't. <laughs> you know? mm. Yeah, I mean, yeah. it's quite scary because it, it does mean that there'll be a large 
you know, large-scale level of bankruptcies coming out of this, and the financial sector will be in a crisis after we get through the coronavirus crisis. So, yeah. uh, it although is, not all, not yeah. businesses are being fairly smart. There's only a th- I'm reading. There's only a thousand businesses have been granted loans under that uh, scheme in the UK out of six million small yeah, businesses. That that's why they're not for. to take it on. Yeah. $145 million is the amount of loans so far, which is uh, just a drop in the ocean, isn't it? But oh, what it has been done what has been done in the UK is this idea, and I think this is going to come back to, to bite people as well, the furloughed workers scheme. So rather than the US approach, which has seen unemployment rise uh, about 20 million, just to, uh, by an extra 20 million people or so far, in the UK, we've got 800,000 companies of furloughed workers, so 6.3 million people in total, with the government paying... 80% of an average salary. So this is getting close to a quarter of the workforce, and it could actually be more because the British Chamber of Commerce surveyed firms and found 70% of, of private firms plan to furlough workers. So is this scheme, a, is this a good idea or not? I guess it's good, but what happens when you wind it back? If, uh, you know, are we going to find, my fear is that we're going to find that, uh, you know, a lot of circumstantial evidence I know through friends, people who've been furloughed, but the job just isn't sustainable. So rather than giving them the 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 the, uh, the, 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 the sack now, knowing that, that that job's not going to be around, they've they've kept them on because the government's going to pay their salary for a little while. But at the end of it all, the the company just can't sustain um, that level of employment. They're all we're going to find that massive spike in un- unemployment happening after it. Yeah, that's that's the, that's the real danger. That um, you know, is that we're going to go out kicking of kicking the can down the road again. Yeah, again, we're sustaining ourselves to some extent. I mean, we should be paying 100%, not 80%. But we're sustaining but running up, you know, some financial commitments that have to be met at a future date. And when those financial commitments are met at a future date, the economy falls over again. So, um, and particularly if the governments go for austerity once more, which of course is unnecessary, but almost almost inevitable to happen given the mindset of people making the economic decisions. So it's, uh, you know, this 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 is... Just the very beginning of the whole process is the actual coronavirus itself. Well, it's not. I mean, supposedly, I mean, you know, Boris Johnson has said, no, we're not we're not going to return to austerity. But then he's going to be faced with a, uh, the rest of his government pointing to the fact that they have racked up so much debt and how they're going to pay for it. And obviously the, the old style thinking says, well, it must be paid back. Mm. But it's even aside from that, businesses are not going to be investing, are they? The, the Federal Reserve produced a report this week. They uh, pretty smart. They used a, basically a machine to sift through the earnings calls of six hundred companies last month, mm-hmm. and they've concluded forty two percent are saying that they are going to trash investments. Uh, that's a uh, the, basically this year. So there's going to be no extra investment by companies. Uh, I mean, the, the, the economy at best is going to stagnate, isn't it? But, I mean, we, we know we're going to get into a hefty recession, but we're, we're not going to invest our way out of it, clearly, either by governments or, or by uh, uh, individual companies. Yeah, and that, like, if you're talking about 40% of firms uh, you know, saying they're not going to be investing and you've got that being, investment being about th- roughly 30% of GDP, that itself is a serious recession. So, yeah, yeah and, the, and, the, and, and households themselves aren't going to be spending as much, so... Uh, it, it is it is a scary prospect for the future, and it, if we if we bring conventional economic behaviour on top of that, 
uh, as you say, by bringing in austerity and so on, it'll only make it worse. So um, it's, a, it's an awfully chaotic period to be foreseeing for the global economy um, with, of course, the, 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 we're still very much in the middle of the woods when it comes to the virus itself right now. Yeah, we are. Who knows how it's going to go on for? Now, I do want to get on to you know, your idea of a debt jubilee because it, its time has come, perhaps. Yeah. But uh, perhaps you know, one, one point just in support of it. We are going to see a massive divide, aren't we, at the end of all of this? So I'm okay. I'm working pretty much as I was before, but I've got friends who are sitting at home twiddling their thumbs wondering how they're going to pay the mortgage. And then we've got companies that are going to do very well out of this, uh, you know, companies that are distributing food, for example. We still, we're still eating at the same rate. Mm-hmm. Uh, but other industries like tourism airlines, obviously, completely trash. So we've got people who kept their jobs and those who haven't. We've got small businesses that are sailing through the, this and those that might make it through but incurring massive debts and might fall over anyway. Uh, I mean, from an economic policy perspective, how do you manage all of that? Because I know that there's this big fear of giving money to everybody. It's got to go to people who deserve it the most. I think deserve was the word that was used by the uh, uh, that by the UK Chancellor. I mean, it's, uh, you know, how do you how, how can you tell who's doing well and who's not? Because we're getting there's going to be enormous diversity coming out of this. Yeah. I mean, there will be industries which which never, never recover again. I think the airline industry is clearly going to be one of those tourism in general. Uh, companies like Airbnb being actually being banned in Australia right now, aren't they? I think that was the case. Are they? Well, it makes sense. Well, they don't want anyone yeah. to come in, anyone to move around. So, I mean, the business is. Yeah. You know, so, effed anyway. Which means the people who are relying upon them to pay their pay their rental, uh, they, they, they pay their mortgages for their investment properties, they're gone. So um, you know, mm. there's there's a horrific level of of damage coming out of this, and it will be all over the place. And that's one reason why I could look. You don't don't even try to um, decide who's deserving and who's not. Simply replace the cash flow we're losing from the impact of the coronavirus for as long as it's necessary, and try to make it that people. Uh, people's current financial commitments can be met, even if their financial commitments that I think should be ultimately abolished, such as the level of uh, mortgage payments people are making right now. Uh, while we're going through this, don't even don't upset the apple cart any more than the coronavirus itself has already done. But in fact, we're likely to we're disturbing it already by giving people eighty uh, percent by trying to decide who's deserving and who's not right now. By therefore slowing down the rate at which money actually gets out into the public. That's particularly the case in America, it seems. Um, and then you come out the other side and there'll be industries which has been completely destroyed. Um, and of course, the tourism and the airline being the most obvious cases. And what the hell can you do? Those, you can't, you know, you can't say it's all your fault. You didn't plan for the coronavirus because, excuse me, you're the government sector. What planning did you do? The answer is bugger all. Um, so mm-hmm. we simply have to say, let's, let's just minimize the damage of this thing rather than amplifying it. And unfortunately, I think we're going to amplify it. Yeah, well, I mean, we came out of 2008, didn't we? We saw massive deleveraging uh, after the global financial crisis because people felt exposed. So they stopped spending as much and tried to uh, get their debts down. Uh, we, it's the, the opposite is happening now. I mean, people are racking up debt because they have to, so they can't afford to spend. So it's, it's the same it's a story, isn't it, in that, you know, spending doesn't happen. It's related to debt. It's possibly going to go on for decades. But people have got no choice on this. They're not deleveraging. It's going the other way at the moment. And, you know, and then maybe the deleveraging happens later. We're, we're, we're talking about, you know, possibly the rest of our lives, the, the repercussions of this, aren't we? 
Oh, however long that might be. Um, yes, I think, <laughs> yeah. I, I think even, I, even even for our younger listeners, <laughs> it, I, I think that um, that that is the real danger. That this, I mean, we, we're laying. And this is the reason it's so damaging, uh, because the people in authority don't realise we have a private debt problem. And this mm. is what's been so frustrating to myself, like myself, Michael Hudson, Anne Pettifor, Richard Vague, Richard Verner. We all know there's a private debt problem. And yet the people in authority don't realise there is one. And yet, therefore, they're not even aware that they're adding to that problem by allowing that debt to accumulate even more rapidly during the period of the coronavirus. And then if they insist on those commitments being met on the other side, there will be an incredibly fast downturn in the economy because credit will already have disappeared. The government will be doing what it can to um, replace, uh, partially replace that demand through things like that 80% scheme in the UK while the virus is in place. When they pull it out of the way, we'll have negative credit rather than positive credit effects. And suddenly the government stimulus is completely withdrawn. Then we'll fall over very rapidly indeed. And then they mm. say, where the hell did that come from? Well, it came from what you didn't treat properly and t- 12 years ago with a financial crisis um, whose causes you ignored back there back then whose symptoms you're ignoring now so yeah right. it's yeah but it, but it, but it will be so evident this time won't it I mean everyone's going to go and look well look there's so much private debt now so much private debt yeah. that people can't afford to can't afford to survive they're going to go hungry so I mean you you've always said you know that uh, when we're talking about the debt jubilee the idea of a debt jubilee it's going to take it's not going to be accepted it's going to take some sort of exogenous shock well here it is and it's going to be so evident isn't it in the next few months I think that's the case and that's that's again what's what uh, you know when I first put that proposal forward it was back in I think about 2010 from memory and I wrote it up in a detailed sense in 2012 and I haven't touched it since because I thought what's the point of developing an idea who's which is never going to have a chance in hell of becoming a a policy anyway. I didn't mm. anticipate ending up in hell <laughs> um, so rapidly because of it, because you know, my, my original argument was, well, well, we'll deal with the private debt overhang the same way we dealt with it back in the 1930s. And that's by going to war. And in the, in the, in the, in the situation of a war economy, this time a war uh, to try to re- recover the damage we've done to the climate rather than a war against uh, the Nazis, of course. Uh, but in that war, as a side effect of all the cash we'll generate uh, from the government side will enable the private sector to pay its debt down. And if we survive the climate crisis, then we'll come out the other side with a revived economy as well. But now yeah. this, this, this coronavirus is so much faster as a crisis than I was anticipating with climate change uh, that we will have the, we'll have the crisis. If we, if we get out of the coronavirus problem itself, we'll have the crisis, financial crisis, instantly, and it'll be worse than it was in 2008 and more sudden. So we, and it'll be before the rest of the climate thing starts to strike. We won't be paying the debt down by the spending we're doing from the government sector to reduce the damage from climate change. So yes, it is something which I think it's time has well and truly come and it's about time. I sat down and spelled it out in more detail yet again. Yeah, I think so. And we, you know, we can talk about it more and more on the, on the podcast, but just for, uh, for definitions of a debt jubilee. So we hear, I mean, people are talking about the idea, uh, again, in all circles now about the idea of, of helicopter money. And sometimes it's it's misinterpreted. So, for example, I mean, the, the, you know, the the fact the U.S. has paid twelve hundred dollars into uh, into people's bank accounts is being referred to as helicopter money, but it's not. It, it's still government debt, isn't it? That the, the, it's still being through through the issuance of bonds, which are still expected to eventually be paid for by by the government. But if you didn't go through that and you just said helicopter money, which is money created by the central bank, 
paid into people's bank accounts. What is the difference between that and your definition of a debt jubilee? Or is it the same thing in effect? It's very, it's fairly similar because again, if you, when you look at the, the, the capacity of the government to service any level of debt it creates, then it could finance a debt jubilee for the private sector by running up its own debt and and uh, and having an increase in public debt as a result of that. But the easiest way to go about it, uh, and again, this is thinking in terms of the, the balance sheet of the central bank in terms of assets liabilities and equity. First of all, the central bank is the only bank that doesn't have to maintain positive equity. I've actually got that on record from a number of researchers I know in the Bank of England, including David Bolat, and they said B-H-O-L-A-T for those who'd like to search out the paper. But it said central banks can and do operate with negative equity. Um, so they can actually get away with it and, and, and not have to worry about the impact of creating assets, uh, not creating a matching uh, level of of uh, equity for them as well. But it's one, one way you could do it, and this is actually taking a leaf out of the Bank of England again. The Bank of England lets the Scottish banks create Scottish pounds using uh, what's called a Titan as an asset on their own banking uh, bank balance. So uh, I don't have sure how much has been created in the way. Have you ever had a Scottish dollar in your bank account? I'm sure you have. A Scottish pound. I think it's called called pound. Yeah, I I mean, you go up to Scotland and you you pretty quickly find your wallet is full of stuff full of Scottish pounds. That's right, Um, which you can use back in the, as long as you don't have totally sceptical shopkeepers in London, you can spend them back in London. In theory. They're accepted across the whole of the UK. But let's say say there's a, a billion pounds worth of those Scottish pounds in circulation. Then what they're balanced by is an asset uh, that, that's 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 a, um, a a liability for the Bank of England. The way they're balanced as an asset for the Bank of England is an asset that they call Titans, and a Titan is a one hundred million pound note. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, you'd like to go shopping with that at Harrods, I can see. Uh, however, if you took it out of the Bank of England, you'd be well. First of all, you'd be probably arrested, and secondly, uh, nobody would accept it as legal tender anyway, even though that's what it says it is. It's simply a piece of paper. You, I don't know whether they produce them on a photocopier. I imagine they do, <laughs> but that's their face value. So that mm-hmm. one one billion pounds worth of you know, actual notice in circulation is balanced by one ten of these titans at the Bank of England. So. The the same thing could be done to create the money for a modern debt jubilee. They could simply say, we are creating, uh, let's say, a, 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 you know, a trillion pounds, if we actually wanted to push the debt level down as far as they think it should be pushed for the UK, a trillion pounds worth of, uh, of, uh, of um, uh, titans. And with that trillion pounds, we're going to put on a, a per capita base, basis a trillion pounds in the bank accounts of the, the uh, people of England, people of the UK. No. So, so the idea is yeah. then they'd use that to pay off their debts or to, or to make it through the, the, this difficult time. How well, are banks no, going to make that money? Yeah. Well, no, this the, day? The, I mean, the, the, banks are going to collapse in this, aren't they? Because, I mean, no, no, because no, because, if they, again, the, 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 banks have got to be too big. And one of the reasons banks are too big is because the, the bank, the, the government sector, even though we live in a fiat money economy, the government has been actively curtailing its capacity to create fiat money. So why do people turn? They turn to the private sector. And we've had this enormous growth in the level of of private debt, particularly in the UK. The UK is probably my favourite example of a debt bubble caused by neoliberalism, private debt bubble. Because when Maggie Thatcher came to power in 1979, the level of 
private debt in the UK was roughly 60% of GDP. And there's data from the Bank of England going back to 1880 showing for that entire century before Maggie's ascension, um, the level of private debt in the UK never exceeded 73% of GDP. Now, two or three years after Maggie gets in power, there was the deregulation of the mortgage market, the whole thing about, you know, yep. letting you buy, buy your own uh, council flat and stuff like that was a major part of it. The private debt level then rose from 55% of GDP, which it was in 1982, to 193% of GDP. Right. That's because uh, commercial banks were basically creating that money to, yeah. to extend to loans. Yeah. yeah. Now, what I want to say, that's far too much. You should never have gone beyond the, beyond the 75% of GDP maximum that you had for the previous century, when, so far as I remember, in looking at the data, British capitalism wasn't doing too badly. Um, yeah. Get back to that 75%. That means about 100% of GDP uh, of, of money which has been created by the banking sector as credit money has to be replaced with fiat money. So right. the whole idea is that it's a replacement of credit money with fiat money. But can you beat the system, Steve? So if so, it's, say I find I've got I don't know what are we talking about five thousand? What, what sort of magnitude are we talking about here? That everyone gets what five thousand pounds, ten thousand pounds? Yeah, put into more their than that. Bank- I mean, you're talking what a population of of what's of, let's say fifty million income earners. Um, yeah. Then you're talking what two hundred? If you want to go, you go pump out a trillion. That's two. That's twenty thousand pounds a head. I think it's twenty thousand no. pounds. Or, yeah, yeah, I think so. Well, it, that sort of magnitude. Okay, not not all at once, presumably. But I, I'd, I well, do, do you know what? I, if I had twenty thousand pounds right now, I would just pay twenty thousand pounds off my uh, off my mortgage, and then what's to, and then um, you know perhaps I'd I'd borrow. I'd say, well, this is great. I can leverage more to borrow more now. And I would say no. And I would say no because that's not the end of the whole proposal. Because the whole thing is saying we let too much credit money be created last time round, we have mm. to find a way of stopping that happening in the future. So we have to know how irresponsible the banking sector is and stop it from creating, creating that amount of debt again in the future. And one of those ideas is what I call the pill, uh, which used to be – I don't think – I wonder how much my audience actually understands the reference to the pill these days. I've got a feeling a very small percentage. But back, back when you and I were young men, uh, the mm. pill was a, was a serious issue. And proper, what I, what anyone I mean, who went what, out for a night out with Boris Johnson probably yeah, uh, knows, or maybe doesn't. Maybe that's the problem. Maybe it anyway, doesn't. Sorry. The number of kids he's had, maybe they don't. <laughs> um, okay, but the pill uh, stands for Property Income Limited Leverage. And this, this is saying that the whole idea that banks lend based on the income you have is a fiction. They have a totally rubbery approach to the amount of income you earn, and we've seen that from all the liar loans and stuff that banks have indulged in around the globe for the last 30 years. Uh, instead put a ceiling on the maximum amount of money that can be lent to buy an asset, which is based upon the income earning capacity of that asset. So in the case of housing, uh, one simple metric I've used is to say that the maximum amount of money should be allowed to borrow to buy a house, whether you're me or Rupert Murdoch, the maximum amount of money should be 10 times the annual rental income of the property. So taking the place that I used to rent in Waterloo, which I, I rented for 15 I think I paid £1,500 a month, so I was paying £18,000 a year. That would mean that the maximum anybody could could borrow from a bank to buy that property would be £180,000. Now, that would mean most likely that there would be a halving at the price level of those houses over time, maybe fairly mm. rapidly. Um, but it, it, what it also would mean is that if you wanted, if that was the rule, and you would actually see when you went to buy a property, here's the maximum amount of a loan you can get, period. And the only question would be, you know, who do you get the loan from? Um, 
then you would have a negative relationship between leverage and house prices. Whereas at the moment you have a positive relationship. What actually causes house prices to rise is an increase in the level of new new mortgage loans. And so, there's, and and we, we we as individuals we have a, an encouragement for that because you and I are competing over the same property, and we let's assume we have the same income. Um, then at the moment, the one of us who wins is the one who gets the larger bank loan. Mm. But if you had its limit. We couldn't, the income, that, that would be taken out of the equation. And the only way we could compete with each other would be by saving more money. So you'd right. get a, ne- a negative, I want to get a negative feedback, as, as they call it, what do I call it, critical, the dampening feedback between leverage and house prices. Which um, all makes perfect sense. But through all of this, you are saying yeah. to the finance sector, hey, we're going to put uh, whatever the figure might be, 20, 30, 50,000 pounds into everyone's bank account. And uh, you're not going to clip the ticket on that. More to the point, it's going to be used to pay off debt. That means you're going to lose the ticket that you've been clicking on that 50000 in debt if that if that debt is repaid. And then in the future, we're going to limit the ability for asset speculation, uh, which is pushing prices up, which is how you're making your money. And that's a triple whammy for the finance sector. There, How much smaller are you expecting the finance sector would be at the, the end of all of that? In the UK's case, it's going to be about one third to one quarter its current size. It would so it would lose three quarters. Yeah, absolutely, it has to. I mean, so they're I mean, going to put the, up a fight against that, aren't they? Obviously, oh, you bet, you is, bet your bottom dollar they're going to put up a fight against it. Um, mm. The only thing that's going to, to make them potentially supported is the possibility of going the alternative being going bankrupt, which is the other side of things for the um, uh, the coronavirus. Because if you have the impact that I expect the coronavirus to have on financial um, uh, solvency on the other side of this of the crisis itself, then lots of those banks who are highly geared are going to find the percentage of the the loan book that has to go bad will go bad and bang, the bank's going to be bankrupt. And Right. Unless, you know. unless governments keep on kicking the can down the road. So they're saying, well, okay, we're going to pay the, the first year of loans. to get to the end of the, the, the year and it looks like everyone, it's all going to fall over. Then they go, we'll do another emergency plan. We'll do it for another year or another three years or whatever. Mm. And lots of can kicking, which is going to supposedly be propping up uh, those loans to keep small businesses alive. But really, it's helping uh, the, the, the finance sector maintain its clip of those tickets. And that's what worries me. I think that's what's going to happen. So even though like, I'm more optimistic about a debt jubilee being a possibility now, I still think that the political power and the, of the financial sector is so great that they'll manage to distort it and manage to prevent it. And then it'll be in the aftermath to the impact of avoiding a debt jubilee that we actually start getting closer to actually having one. Because if you avoid it um, and you... You then have you know, financial corporations falling over because the debt that is issued is too high for the people to be able to service in the post-coronavirus economy. Then a lot of them are going to go bankrupt, and mm. you know there's there's no way to get around this except for the confrontation with the finance sector. I can't see I can't see it being avoided. And yet we need the money. We need people with money to be able to invest because we will see a, a, a big shift, a big structural shift happening in the economy. So it's very sad to see uh, airlines go to the wall, for example. But uh, it would be better if they were replaced by something that is perhaps uh, more ecologically friendly, um, which is part of the future. So, I mean, the, the, we're going to see a, sh- a structural shift, but we won't see that structural shift if there's, if there's not the, the money there to invest 
to see other businesses grow. Yeah, and well, it's also a question of whether we realise we have to go backwards in terms of our pressure on the planet as well. But in that sense, I see coronavirus as a relatively friendly shot across the bowels by the environment to the to our economy, uh, because yeah. what's I mean, the, one of the scariest um, prospects is one that actually I know a science fiction writer, I think it's Kim Robertson, is working on. And um, he wrote a piece, a very good piece, I think, in the New York Review of Books just a week or two ago about what climate change probably entails for society. And as interestingly enough, I first realised the dangers of the of uh, the West Antarctic ice shelf um, in, in a, reading a science fiction book about Mars by Kim Robinson. And in that book, he hypothesized that there'd been a sudden collapse in the West Antarctic ice shelf, leading to an environmental catastrophe on Earth, which meant that they then decided they had to invade the nascent college uh, colony of humans on Mars. And there's a, you know, a long sci-fi story on the other, the other end of that. And I remember reading it. This is, I think I was, this is back in the early 1990s, if not, if not before that. And my reaction was sci-fi writers rarely use a hook like that unless there's some actual basis to it. So I went looking at what's the story about the West Antarctic ice shelf. And there, sure enough, it's incredibly fragile. Well, the point that Robertson used, Robinson used in his article in the New York Times last week was that there would be a, a, heat crisis in a third world country uh, where the temperature, global temperature had risen sufficiently that what's called the, the wet bulb temperature, it could ex- would exceed 35 degrees. And people are only hanging on in some major uh, economy or some major metropolis somewhere uh, because of air conditioning. And then the power system broke down. Mm. And then what that means is within six hours, uh, everybody who's exposed to that temperature will die. And you then have the political consequences of that. Amusingly enough, guess what happened in our house yesterday? Your air conditioning broke down. No, the entire the entire town's electricity system broke down. It lasted two yeah. hours, and it was at uh, it was about four o'clock in the afternoon, so it wasn't too bad. But um, this is this is quite likely to happen. We are likely to see something of that nature happen, where uh, it was the temperature rises, the level rises, suddenly the power system gets stressed, and a city which is only barely hanging on because everybody's in air conditioning breaks down, and then bang, you have those people die on mass, and then what's the reaction of their government? Well, if the government has nuclear weapons, such as India or Pakistan, it could be a very interesting reaction. So, yeah, you know. well, <laughs> let's let's hope we don't get to that stage. Look, I mean, just back to the back to where we are now. Just finally, a quick question from Cloudy in Spain, one of our listeners. Mm. He says, in 2008, I think we've sort of answered it today. Mm. In 2008, the world came out with uh, Keynesian stimulus, uh, but in Europe, we saw austerity. Central banks and governments have acted quickly this time, but do you see it uh, possible that ideology, narratives and intellectual animal spirits can cause mistakes like like 10 years ago? Well, I think different mistakes is the answer to that, isn't it? Basically different mistakes, yeah. I mean, again, uh, we're likely to get the siren call for austerity to pay back the government debt. Uh, We're likely to, you know, there'll be resistance to the idea of a jubilee, which is the only thing which could actually save the whole uh, system. Uh, we, of course, we'd need a rescue for people in the financial sector to get them over the shock of going from three quarters of a million pounds in income to a mere 75,000. Um, and I'm using an actual example there, by the way. Um, the, but, yeah, but yeah, I think they'll resist that hand tooth and claw and then we'll find ourselves walking into a climate catastrophe regardless and have to cope with that. 
So they'll, they'll make the wrong decisions. What I find strange is even in the in the mainstream media, it seems like an, an obvious question for uh, a, a switched on journalist. I know there's not many of them around, but to, to ask if everyone is getting into debt, if every government around the world is getting into debt to pay for this thing and every company and every individual is getting more and more into debt. Wouldn't the obvious question be, well, if we're all in debt, can't we just write it off and start again? Well, that's it. Why is that question never? To which yeah. the answer would be from a from a banker. Well, somebody uh, somebody is making money from that debt. Are you saying that that person shouldn't uh, shouldn't be earning the money from 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 offering that debt? Well, that's that's the danger in people's conventional thinking about this. I saw this being mentioned yeah. by some Twitterite today, saying that you know because an asset one asset is somebody else's liability, uh, you can't have a debt write off. It'll it'll destroy the other side. That's still thinking in a loanable fund sense. Uh, it, yeah. where if, you, if, you, if you've lent me the money and you don't repay me, then I suffer. And, you know, I have personal experience of that sort of situation. Yeah. But that, that is uh, fine, but fine as an argument for an, uh, an individual loaning it, to another individual, it, but it doesn't apply to a central yeah, but bank. It's, it's, when, a bank lending, when a bank loans to a non-bank, it's a very different story. Uh, because you create money by lending, you, you destroy money by repaying it. A debt jubilee would neither create nor destroy money. It would simply change the basis of the money from being credit-based to being fiat-based. The real impact, as you said at the beginning, is on the finance sector because it would lose you know, up to three-quarters of its resources, which currently earn it income in terms of loans, would be replaced by cash reserves from which they make no money. Now, that would actually put them in a desperate situation of needing in terms of their asset asset backing, they can't lend from the reserves, as I've mentioned numerous times. But they would have a desperate need to make to go from non-income earning assets to income earning assets. So there would be a there would be an inspiration for the banks seeking to start lending. And if they couldn't lend to property speculators and they couldn't lend um, to share market speculators, both of which I'd attempt to ban, uh, then they'd have to lend to corporations. Yeah. And individuals, which, and we might get a bit of an entrepreneurial which, boost to the economy, yeah, which, which, we, which we need because we're going to see this ma- massive structural shift and companies will disappear and new industries hopefully will emerge uh, or, or new companies will replace the companies that have gone to the wall. So absolutely, and, and if the, we need banks mm. to uh, help uh, see through those investments. Very interesting stuff. Uh, good to talk as always, Steve. Let's see what happens in the uh, in the next week or two. I mean, I was going to say in the next year or two, but it's the next week or two, isn't it? It moves pretty rapidly. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. All right. Talk soon. Thank you. Okay. Bye. And uh, next time, not entirely related to COVID-19, but it is related a bit. We're going to look at income disparity. Obviously, we are going to see a widening of the income gap as a result of the haves and have-nots, the have a job and don't have a jobs uh, who've uh, been through this whole thing. Uh, but generally, uh, what does income disparity mean for productivity? What does it mean for the ability for a country to grow? Uh, we'll look at that next time on the debunk. Economics podcast. For that one, you do need to be a subscriber. This podcast was free, available to everybody. If you want to listen to all the podcasts, and we've done over 200 of them now, then you do need to subscribe at debunkingeconomics.com or go to Patreon and support Steve Keen there, patreon.com forward slash prof Steve Keen. I'm Phil Dobby. See you next time. Thanks for listening. Mom. 
mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. If you've enjoyed listening to Debunking Economics, uh, even if you haven't, you might also enjoy The Y Curve. Each week, Roger Hearing and I talk to a guest about a topic that is very much in the news that week. It's lively, it's fun, it's informative. What more could you want? So search The Y Curve in your favourite podcast app or go to ycurve.com to listen.